Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 21. I encourage you, if you have a Bible at home, to go and grab it and read along with me. And as always, the words will be up on the screen beside me. The passage reads, When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by the door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. And they brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead, and those who followed, shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything since it was already late, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to it to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it into a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is God's word. Well, as we enter into this next uh, set, uh, stage of, of the Gospel of Mark, as, as Dan said last week, uh, the end of chapter 8 is a hinge passage, dead in the center of the Gospel of Mark. It's important that we look back on the first uh, part of this series. That we, we started with looking at the, the verse 1 where Jesus, uh, Mark says, sorry, that this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the name that means Yahweh saves. And he is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited royal figure who will come to save but also rule his people and liberate them. And he is introduced as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's also a divine figure, God coming to rule and to save. And the first half of Mark and, and all the passages we've looked at so far uh, continue to, to show that Jesus is this character, that he is the one who is going to save his people. And the expectations keep getting higher. Jesus kind of keeps going up and up. He keeps upping the ante in everything that he does. So we've seen all these various stories of, of Jesus um, blowing people's minds in their categories. The first story we looked at is Jesus healing a blind man as he's lowered in in front of Jesus and all these people. And Jesus sees their faith and he heals this man, but he also forgives his sins. That Jesus is, is not just a social justice warrior and he is not just someone who's coming to forgive sins, but his king, he's the king and his kingdom brings both together. Then we saw that Jesus calms the storm and he casts out demons, showing that his king and his kingdom are stronger than the dark forces and the chaos in our world that we can't control. And we saw Jesus healing a bleeding woman and uh, raising from death a little girl. That the king and kingdom bring life and healing into our world. 
And then lastly, we saw that Jesus provides food for 15,000 people, that he is a better king than any other option that we have, and that his king and kingdom is better than even our needs or our imaginations, that we are called to lift our imaginations even to greater things, because that's how great of a king Jesus is. And I started the series with this idea of barbecue, if you remember all the way back, that I have a very small idea, most of us have a very small idea of, of what king and kingdom can be, and the first eight chapters of Mark are asking us to expand that, to get excited, to see what, how much power and, and the amazing um, ministry that Jesus has and the kingdom that he brings into our world. And each of these stories displays that, that Jesus is truly God. He is here to save. He is here to rule. And this is what it looks like when God arrives on the scene. And we have to think about how the disciples must have felt, these people that were following Jesus very closely. That if Jesus is this king and he's coming to liberate, if we stick with him, if we hang with him not only as our rabbi, but when he becomes this king, we will then be generals, will be people important in his kingdom. And so this going up of Jesus, as people continue to get excited, they, they would continue to get excited about what that might mean for them. And I, in my mind, I think of it almost like a startup. At the beginning of a startup, it's just a lot of hard work and not very much fun. But the excitement comes from like something like an IPO where you sell off your shares or your shares are now worth millions of dollars. And that's kind of what the disciples are thinking about their life. If we follow Jesus to the IPO, to this big moment of his life, then we are going to be able to share in the spoils of it. And the crowds that are following Jesus probably think the same thing. Every one of these stories, they're hearing echoes of these stories around Galilee and around the land. And people are starting to flock towards Jesus because they're hearing of people being liberated, people being healed. And they think if that could happen to, to those people... What could Jesus do in my life? Not only for me, but what could it mean for all of us? Us as a group of people, as the, the, the Jewish people, could this be the moment where God is actually going to bring us back to our rightful place? And, and that resonates a lot with me, and I think it resonates a lot with all of us, that we want to see the inbreaking of God's kingdom. We want to see people healed. We want to see injustices solved. We want to see people, um, the chaos of our world, world stilled. You know, I want Jesus to come into those areas of my life too. To, to calm the waters and to bring life where there's death. And the triumphal entry that we read, the first part of the passage that we read, seems like this climax moment, the, the climax of all this that we've build, been building towards. Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem. Now, in, in their mind, the world was like a big circle, and Jerusalem was at the very center of that circle. It is the city of God. And it's the epicenter of their world. And so if Jesus is going to rule from anywhere, he's been in and around Galilee this whole time, he's heading to Jerusalem to take over. This is be, would be where the kingdom of God would be inaugurated. And he's riding on a donkey, which means absolutely nothing for us. I think maybe the last time you may have seen someone riding on a donkey was at a farm or maybe in a circus. But for, for them, this meant something quite important. Most people walked into Jerusalem. It was a long uh, uphill climb. Jesus rides in on a donkey and he's fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah 9. I'm going to read it for us. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus, by riding in on a donkey, is telegraphing to anyone who had knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. And all these people are living in this, uh, these, these passages um, from the Hebrew scriptures in hope that someday this, this Jesus will come, that somebody, the, this king would come. And Jesus is, by riding in on a donkey, saying, the king is here. I am here. I am here to liberate you. 
And the disciples, they saddle the animal with their coats. They put it underneath so Jesus can sit on, on it. And the people are throwing their coats onto the ground for, for the donkey to walk on top of in this dusty place. And you got to remember, they're not like us. They didn't have 10 coats. Um, they probably just had one. And, and the symbolism of this is that they're putting everything underneath Jesus. We, you sit on top of us and even your animals sit on top of us. We will submit to you. You are our king. You are our leader. And they're throwing branches under Jesus. And uh, at the time, this would also um, bring to mind uh, this, this recent hero that they had in Jewish history, Simon Maccabeus, who had helped for a short period of time to liberate the Jewish people from the Romans. And he rode in uh, to um, Jerusalem and the people threw branches under him. And so it's the same idea that Jesus is going to be this liberator like Simon Maccabeus who will overthrow the Romans. And the people are cheering and they're singing and they're saying, Hosanna! which means save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118, which is a psalm of messianic hope that this Messiah would come. And so all these things are working together. And the disciples probably think this too. If you remember back to last week in Mark 8, uh, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And in this beautiful moment, right at the heart of the gospel of Mark, Peter says, you are the Messiah. But then Jesus warns him, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that's, that's who I am. But now Jesus is doing everything in public. This whole triumphal entry is coming into public. And so G- Paul, Peter, or Peter and the disciples probably think, oh, this is the amazing moment. This is the public moment where Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah, not just to us, but to the whole world. The king is in the heavenly city. He's going up. He's been going up all through the gospel of Mark. He's been healing. And then there's all this excitement in and around him. And this is the climax moment. He's going up and we are going up with him. But if you remember back to last week, we also heard some very disturbing words from Jesus that don't fit this story of going up and conquering and climax very well. There are words that show that Jesus is on the path to Jerusalem for another purpose. Let's read them again. It says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and after, rise after three days. And he spoke openly about this. Down to verse 34, calling to the crowd, along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. And Jesus is saying the path doesn't continue up, but actually at the end of chapter 8 and towards Jerusalem, it actually starts to go down. It goes down for Jesus who says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I won't be enthroned through conquering. My story is not going to continue to go like this, but it's actually, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on and flogged. And eventually I'm going to die. And for his disciples, he says the same thing. Your path, if you're going to follow me, is the same. You must take up your cross, the same path as Jesus And in between the passage that was read last week and the passage we're reading today, Jesus says, it's not a path of becoming rich, but actually a path of becoming poor. It's not a path of power, but a path of service. It's not about being first, it's about being last. It's not about being a strong person, it's like being a child. And discipleship and following me isn't about coasting, it's about getting to a place where now we can just relax and everything's all good and we rule from there. But the path with Jesus is about continually re-examining our lives, what path we're walking on and the effects of our actions and walking with Jesus through the fire so that we can become refined and more like him. Henry Nouwen, one of my heroes, calls this downward mobility. 
the descending way of Jesus. The Apostle Paul calls this kenosis, uh, famously in his passage from Philippians 2, which we looked at last year, the emptying of Jesus and the path that we're called to follow. And the second part of the story that we looked at today illustrates this going down story, this downward path of downward mobility. And Jesus is continuing to break expectations of people, but in a, in, I would say in a negative way, because it's not going up anymore, it's going down. And so if we look at that passage again, the first thing that Jesus does after he has this triumphal entry into the city, he goes back into the city the next day. He sees this fig tree and he curses it. And then he creates havoc in the temple itself. And these things go together. Uh, if, you, if you notice, there was a tree story, then he goes to the temple and then he goes back to the tree. And, and the author is trying to tell us that these things work together. And there's a lot we could look at in this passage. It definitely could be a sermon in itself. But I just want to say two things about it here. First, these, these, both of these stories contain a lot of ancient imagery, ancient metaphor. They work in the social story of the ancient world, which of course we don't live in. And so to put it simply, the tree represents Israel. And Jesus looks at it and says, there's something wrong with this tree. There's something wrong at the root. And the expectation would be that Jesus would bless it. You got to remember, he's coming in to Jerusalem and the people are thinking he's going to raise Israel up. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he curses the tree because of something wrong with it. And we'll look at that in a little bit. And it's not a simple curse. He says, no one will ever eat from you again. And we see that the tree ends up being completely withered from the roots up. And so the disciples must be mind, like, have their minds blown at this point, but not in a good way. Again, they're expecting Jesus to come in and glorify this tree, to, to raise up the tree of Israel to its rightful place, but instead he curses it. And then Jesus goes to the temple. And again, in the, in the uh, social imagination of the world, Jerusalem is at the center of the world, and then the temple is at the center of Jerusalem. So Jesus, where is he going to inaugurate his kingdom from? He's going to go to the temple, and it's going to be this amazing moment where everybody comes around him, all the crowds do, they worship him, and they, he galvanizes them together, and they get excited, and they overthrow the Romans, and they take their rightful place ruling in the world. But Jesus doesn't do that when he goes to the temple. He doesn't make it his ministry home base. Instead, he starts throwing people out, cursing the temple, and he angers the religious authorities that are there. And then they says they seek to kill him. And we'll see this common reaction of not glorifying Jesus and being excited and having awe about him as we saw in the first eight chapters. But now people are going to start to condemn him and have this common reaction of negativity and leaving Jesus on as he walks on this downward mobility path. And so in the next two weeks, as we start to look towards Easter and, and as the book in, in the Gospel of Mark changes, we're going to look, I want us to look at two important questions. Why does Jesus have this path of downward mobility in his story? Why? What is it about the king and kingdom of Jesus that necessitates him not just continuing to go up, but actually taking downward mobility? And then next week, we'll look at why does Jesus, why does this downward trajectory have to end in death? That's a very foreign concept in our world. Why does this downward path end there? So let's look at the first question today and its implications for us with the time that we have less. Why does Jesus, as Karl Barth says, go from the heights to the depths, from victory to defeat, from riches to poverty, from triumph to suffering, from life to death? Why? Why doesn't he just come into Jerusalem and conquer? Why can't the path continue to go straight? And then the, the second part we'll look at is why does he ask us as his followers to follow him on that path of downward mobility? Why is this the way of the kingdom? And so I want to give us two points. The first is this, that the road of downward mobility is where our king shows us that he's all in 
with us. The road of downward mobility is where our king shows us that he's all in with us. The, the Christian belief is uh, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. And this is what we see throughout the gospel of Mark, that Jesus as a human is around, and, uh, he's, but he's doing these things uh, that show that he's also got this presence of God with him, that he is God himself. And we saw that, as I said, from ch- verse 1 of chapter 1, that he is Jesus Christ, this human-awaited figure, but he's also the Son of God. He's man and he's divine. And we, we often think of this theologically, um, that it's a statement of what it means to be a Christian. And in the history of the church, this is a very important distinction. Uh, Back to the Nicene Council, there were different beliefs about Jesus. Some people would say he was just all God or just all man, or he was a bit more than a man, but not quite a God. And so in the Nicene Council, they gathered to say, no, he is fully God and fully human. He's homoousios, one substance with God. And this is how we often think of it too, as something we would affirm, that I believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. But I want to focus our attention in this sermon on one aspect of that, maybe in a bit of a different way. What does it mean that God, Jesus, sorry, is fully human, that he has God become fully human? And then why does God as a fully human, Jesus as a fully human person, need to take on this path of downward mobility? Well, I might say that humanity has two ends of a spectrum. There's two different distinctions that it, of what it means to be human. On one end of the spectrum, and what Jesus experienced, is the beauty and the amazing calling of what it means to be a human being. So biblically, in the Bible story, on one end, it means that to be human is a beautiful thing, almost a God-like thing in the world. And if we go zoom all the way back to the first story of the Bible, when God creates people, it says that he creates them in his image, that we are the reflection of God into the world, that if God is unseen, but if the world wants to see him, they will see him through us. It uses the same word there as, uh, as uh, the word for idols in the Old Testament, that we are the image of God into the world, this amazingly high calling. We are almost like God. Our calling is to reflect him into the world and all the things that we see him doing, creating, uh, bringing shalom, uh, you know, um, loving people. All of these things are things that we're to reflect into the world. And it also says in that passage that we're to be like vice regents. It's another way of saying it, that we are to be like God's kings, his rulers on the world, not to lord over things, but to steward the world and to bring God's kingdom into the places, into the wilderness and the places outside of Eden itself. That's our calling as human beings. That's the potential that we have. And if you stop and think about it, it's absolutely mind-blowing that this is what you and I are called to be. That's the glory that we hold in what it means to be human. And the beauty of this call is absolutely staggering if we stop to think about it, that the God of the universe would want to reflect himself through me and through us. And that's what we see Jesus doing in the first part of the Gospel of Mark. He's, he's fulfilling that call to restore all that is broken, to perfectly, beautifully reflect the heart of God into the world, bringing um, you know, shalom into the places of wild and waste. But there's another side of what it means for God to become human and for us to be human ourselves. The Bible says, if we continue on in the story of the Bible, that the world is also a broken place. That it's under the sway of another kingdom, as we talked about in this series. It's the kingdom of death, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin. And what it means to be human also means that we live in that broken place, in the wildernesses of the world, and we're underneath this dark power. 
And in choosing downward mobility, Jesus is fully entering not only into this part of the story that he is the divine reflection of God, that that is the utmost calling of what it means to be human. That's what we are at our best. But he's also entering into the other pole of human existence. Now, I want to be very clear. The Bible says Jesus never sinned, so he never contributed to that. But he enters into this world. He understands what it means to live underneath the kingdom of darkness as its captive. And this will have repercussions for his death, of course. But I want to show us today that he takes this slow path of downward mobility, of rejection, of mocking, of agony, of the hatred of people. And in doing so, our God knows what it means to be not only the king, the triumphing king, to bring hope and all these miracles into the world, but he also knows what it means to be a man of sorrow, to be, as he says, lowly in spirit, to be in that place, to live in that place of darkness that we can understand. What it means to be human is also to be vulnerable, to be broken, to be open and know what it means to be hurt. And Jesus, in the downward mobility, knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be fully human because he's gone there. He is Emmanuel, God with us, not only in these triumphing moments that we've seen in Mark 1 to 8, not just at the top of the mountain, but also in the valley and in the moments we'll see coming in these next sets of sermons and, and, and chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Now, why does this matter? I'm going to give an example. It's a fictitious one, but I think it's like a parable. You know, I like to, I think sometimes I imagine if Jesus was in my life, it would be like if Elon Musk, you know, moved in next door to me in Strathcona. On one hand, that'd be super cool. Um, you know, I'd probably get some really nice kickbacks. Um, maybe I'd get invited to their kid's birthday party. I can't even imagine what that would be like, but I bet it would be something to talk about no matter what it's like. It would probably make me pretty popular if Elon Musk lived next door. You guys might come over a little more often and just be like, I'm kind of here to see you, but I'm mostly here to see them. Um, and if I ever got in trouble, you know, maybe I could just ask him for one Bitcoin and uh, like financially and, and he could just give me a little loan. Um, but even though we would be neighbors, we live on the same street, we're both human beings. I don't think we would really be able to relate to one another. Like I imagine if we were out um, and we're just, you know, sweeping the sidewalk uh, and, and there's me with a normal broom, Elon Musk probably has some sort of robotic thing from Saturn and uh, we're just start talking and he's like, hey, how are you doing? You know, how's things going for you? And I say, yeah, you know, it's okay. Um, but, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot living, you know, during a pandemic, three kids, we're living in the city, one salary. Um, there's a lot of tough decisions to make and um, hard, hard conversations with my wife just the other day, you know, we had this disagreement about how to spend money on a vacation. And so I'm just kind of pouring out my troubles in my heart to him. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, I get it. Money's tight. I'd be like, actually, I don't think you do get it. I don't think that you, you just made like a billion dollars off of Bitcoin. I, I really don't think you understand what my life is like, even though we're both neighbors, both people sweeping the street together, we wouldn't be able to connect because his life is in a different stratosphere. Or maybe I ask him, you know, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, you know, it's okay, but um, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, but I'm just really hoping to get to Mars soon. And, but all my spaceships are busy, you know, with other people. So yeah, just thinking a lot about that. And I would be like, okay, um, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when I can't get an Evo, like around five o'clock, it's really tough to get an Evo. Same, same, right? And I really wouldn't be able to relate to his struggles and his troubles either. 
because our context is so different, we really wouldn't be able to get one another. His life has kind of lived up here. Like I said, in a different stratosphere, literally, if he's going to space. And mine is lived down here. And the only things, therefore, I can really relate to him on are asking him for help. He's up here, and, and I, I might ask him, you know, like I said, for a loan, or be able to take advantage of him, being invited to his kid's party for my own good and my own sake. And the reason I use this example is because I think that we can treat Jesus like this too. Yeah, we both sweep the sidewalk. We both know what it's like to be human, but we're, we're coming at life from totally different vantage points. So we really can't relate. You know, God, Jesus was God and he was fully human, but he can't really relate to my nine to five, to like my budget spreadsheet, or what it means that I can't find a partner, or what it means that I have infertility. God doesn't really understand that part of my life. And so when I experience problems, the only thing I can ask from Jesus is for help because he is on this upward trajectory in his life and I'm feeling like I'm down here. So my prayers to him, my relating to him is, is just like, help me get out of this difficult situation or get me out of this place of weakness. I feel weak, but I know you're strong. I need you to get me out. Get me out of the downward mobility that I'm in and bring me to the upward mobility of what it looks like that you are. You know, bring me back to the conquering story of these stories of healing and miracle that I read about in Mark 1 to 8. And so I have no vision for being with Jesus on the path of downward mobility because he can't really understand it. Yeah, he became a human, but he can't really understand. And he probably doesn't even want it because he is this conquering God. And if he was to be fully present in my life, he would be bringing me into that conquering story. And so what ends up happening in our lives as Christians is there's no place for suffering. There's only place for healing. There's no place for being just in a prolonged period of waiting. There's only a place for a story of Jesus entering my life and bringing deliverance. And there's no place for being emptied out slowly. There's only a place of being excited for Jesus and feeling full of the emotion of gladness. And this is why it's so important that we see that Jesus, as fully human, walks this downward path to see that he does get it. He's not like Elon Musk living next door to me. He can relate because he has emptied himself out for me and for you. He does get this end of human life too. He's not just a conquering story. He stands with us in our pain and our suffering and in our crying out. He knows what that's like and he's present there. And he brings hope and purpose to the downward path, not just by lifting us out and getting us back to the conquering story, but by being there and knowing what that is and standing with us in those moments. And when I see that Jesus purposely walked this path, I begin to know Jesus. I can relate to him differently. And I gain a vision for how he might be working in my life when my life goes on the downward path. He's not, as the Bible said, a stranger to those who are downcast. He's not unaware of how you feel when you experience the effects of sin in your body through sickness, through death, through cancer. He's not left you when you experience the rejection of other people. And he's not refusing to bless you when you are poor and you're at the end of your budget before the end of the month. No, the God who chose to serve, the God who chose to be broken and rejected knows exactly how that feels. And he says to us in those moments, I know you, I know your problems and I can relate to you. And the other beautiful offer is that he says, and you can know me. 
You can know me. I'm not a stranger on this path in your story. I know. And I do bring deliverance. By God's grace, he does sometimes bring miracles. And he does sometimes heal. But he also brings kingdom purpose and plan on the downward path. And so the road of downward mobility shows us where our king, or is where our king shows us that he's all in with us. The road of downward mobility is where our king shows us that he's all in on the human condition. And the second point is this, that the road of downward mobility is also where we see if we're really all in with our king. Let's return to Jesus and this fig tree for this point. So we'll read again this passage from uh, chapter 11, verse 13 to 14, just to remind us. So Jesus sees in the distance this fig tree with leaves, and he went to find out if there's anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Then zooming down to verse 20. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. Just for the sake of brevity, I'm going to quote a commentator who helps us understand what's going on here. Larry Hurtado, he says, The green figs of the tree in the story appear early in the spring before the leaves. So when the tree is growing, there will be little buds of figs on the tree and then the leaves should grow. Since the tree that Jesus is talking to has leaves but no figs, it means that it eventually will produce no fruit. It will produce no fruit. Rather, the tree's leaves promise fruit, but the absence of green fruit means that the tree's appearance is deceptive. It is this that Jesus uses as a symbol for the temple. It has the appearance of dedication to God, but in substance, it falls short of doing his will. And so it gets his curse. What Hurtado is saying is that this whole thing with the, the, the fig tree, because it goes fig tree, remember, temple, temple, and then fig tree again, is that Jesus is saying the temple has leaves but no fruit. It looks like a place where people can come and meet God and receive wholeness and healing, but it's actually a cover-up for nothingness. And it looks like the hot spot of the kingdom of God, but in reality it was infested with the commerce and the way of life of all the other kingdoms of the world. And so Jesus curses it. He says that this actually is completely broken. And there's a challenge, I think, in, in this story for each of us today. Maybe we would say we're a Christian. We do all the Christian stuff. Maybe we even know and would recite the Nicene Creed. You know, Jesus is one with God, God from God, light from light. But how do we know if our tree is just leaves or if there's actual some slow growing of fruit? And the answer in the Gospel of Mark is the way that we know whether it's just leaves or there's fruit growing on our tree is this question, are we willing to join Jesus on the path of downward mobility? That's both the test and how we know if there is fruit growing in our lives. Because we'll never fool God. God always knows, but we can very easily fool ourselves and we can fool other people on the upward path when things are going well. You know, when there's money in the bank, when everybody likes us, when we're not stuck in a quarantine that's messing with our heads for a year. It's not in the upward path that it's revealed whether there's fruit or if it's just leaves. It's actually on the downward path. Like Dan said last week, it's on the downward path that we find out, are my hand, is my hands, are they actually open? Or am I just saying that they're open to God? You find that out when you follow Jesus on down the path of downward mobility. 
It's in this where we find out if we're saying God's will be done or we're actually saying my own will be done. We find that out through suffering and service, not through conquering. We, when we ask the question, is Jesus king? And am I praying to him that his kingdom would come? Or am I actually praying for my own kingdom, my kingdom, my power, my glory? We find that out, not in the moments of being full, but in the moments of being emptied. The downward path is not only where we meet Jesus, where he shows that he's all in with us, but it shows us the answers to each of these questions. Am I all in with him? Which is why it's so important that we don't just have one story to tell the conquering story, but we have a vision for Jesus and what's happening on this path of downward mobility. And I have to say that this is a very personal uh, message for me. Because this past year in my own life has been one where the, the path of downward mobility has been forced on me. I didn't choose it. It's been forced. And I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm suffering because of my faith and I have so much to be thankful for and grateful for in my life. It's not like everything has been stripped away, but it's still been one of the hardest years of my life. I wouldn't wish cancer on anyone or a year-long quarantine or trying to pastor through that year-long quarantine on other people. And in this year of darkness, I've asked a lot of questions. You know, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to our church? You know, why me, God? Why, why cancer in my body? Where are you, God? As I feel like this world is just kind of unspooling and my life is too. And I'm crying out, why am I in this downward story? And I'm yearning for God to heal me, to take me back to the upward story, to provide redemption. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was the only part of the story that I knew. It was the only way that I knew to, to relate to God was to cry out to him to bring me back to that upward trajectory. That was the only way I think of him being present in my life. But early on, shortly after my diagnosis, I read this verse from Habakkuk. You know, as you just randomly read Habakkuk. But it, it, it became a verse of the year for me. It's from Habakkuk 3. and It says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the, fig or the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my God, is my strength. And this verse challenged me so much and became a paradigmatic for my whole year. What if nothing goes right? Am I still able to rejoice? Is God still good? Is he my savior? And it challenged me to think not just in the upward story, but what if in this moment where I'm feeling down, where it's one of the hardest years of my life, like I said, that God is actually not distant, but he's here. That he knows. And Jesus, from my understanding, never took chemo or radiation. You know, my Greek's not that good. It could be in there. But he understands that end of the human spectrum. And he walked that road slowly and painfully, just like sometimes it feels like I am. And so he is not a stranger to me as I lie on that radiation bed or I recover from my surgeries. And maybe in those moments, I realize that God is not absent, but it's exact moment where he's most present. And I realized from reading that verse and some others that I had a choice. I had a choice to walk by myself down the downward path that I felt like I was going on, relying on my own resources for sustenance, probably complaining the whole way down. Or I had a choice to walk with him, to be ministered to by him and see that he was right there with me on that path down. 
And, and during this last year, I've been ministered to by so many people. You know, my wife has been a hero. She's been a minister to me. We probably, maybe we should, we should hire her as the pastor. Um, and my kids have ministered to me. So many of you have ministered to me and our family. And my medical team has amazingly ministered to me. I felt God's love so much through each of every one of you. But Jesus has also met me on that downward path in a way that I could have never known before. He actually, he wasn't absent. He was there ministering. And I can say at this point, even though my journey is not over and this pandemic is not over, that he has been my strength. He's been my salvation. And I, I learning, I'm learning how to rejoice in the Lord, even in the downward path. And so I think an application for you and I, sometimes some of you are going through really big things like I am. This is maybe the hardest year of your life. You don't need me to tell you that. But I think all, all of us are going through this pandemic. And it's been unchosen downward mobility for all of us. And I, like all of you, hope that it ends very soon. But I also want you to hear what this passage is saying. That the path of downward mobility for the Christian is not just something to be avoided or something to just get through and wait through, but it's actually something to embrace. Not because we love the pandemic or because we're masochists, but because Jesus embraced the fullness of humanity. And on the path of downward mobility, when it's forced on us, Jesus can actually meet us there. On this path, you'll see if your tree contains just leaves or if there is some slow fruit that is growing by God's grace. And he will minister to you in that place of downward mobility. And in him, you can even find a reason to rejoice. And so I want to beg you, you know, don't waste this time. Don't waste this downward mobility. Again, I don't wish it on anyone, but please don't just wait it out. We only have a few months left in this pandemic. So don't just use it to catch up on Netflix or to remodel your kitchen or get really into gardening as wonderful as all of those things are. But maybe this time of downward mobility as it's been forced on all of us is actually an opportunity for us to meet Jesus, to ask the question, where might Jesus be in the midst of this? If he has experienced the fullness of what it means to be human, that he knows what it's like to be here. And where might he be asking you to examine the tree, to invite you into the fire, to make you more like him? That your tree coming out of this, you might be a person that is bearing fruit, even in the midst of downward mobility. Let's close in prayer. God, we, um, I think this uh, story is one that we maybe conceptually know, but we often don't tell in our own lives. We think of you so much on the upward trajectory as the God who conquers and Praise, praise God that you do. You are, you are the conquering king. And we long for the inbreaking of the kingdom in our lives in all of those ways and in our world. But please teach us not to forget you on the downward path. For each person listening, I pray wherever they are on that downward path, whether it's just the malaise of the pandemic or there's very something specific going on where they find themselves in a place of weakness, in a place of darkness, in a place of sadness, in a place of wondering why, that they wouldn't just only have the story of the upward trajectory to tell, but that they would tell the story of weakness, that you walk this path with us and that you may be found in those moments, that you know us and that we have the privilege of knowing you in the darkest moments of our lives. May that be true for us, not only for us that we would have hope and have a vision for that, but also that our lives may reflect you. As I said in the very beginning, that this is our call, 
that as we live out our lives amongst uh, the watching world, that they would see your goodness and your glory reflected, that you are with us not only in those triumphal moments, but you are with us in the dark moments of life. And may that bring hope to the people, to our family members, to our friends, to all of those who are watching around. So as we respond now in musical worship, in our giving, um, in prayer, I pray that you would drill these things into our heart. Show us that you're near. Teach us where you long for us to be more like you. We give this time to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.